The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm your host, Ray Offenheiser. Today, I'm joined by a good friend, Jim Ansara, co-founder and managing director of Build Health International. Jim is a retired general contractor who founded Shawmut Design and Construction Company, one of the top 25 construction companies in the United States. After his retirement, Jim pursued boots on the ground philanthropy and began to volunteer with programs that make a tangible difference in the lives of the underprivileged. Just before the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, Jim volunteered to manage construction of a fully solar powered national teaching hospital in Haiti's central plateau for Boston-based Partners in Health. The hospital, Hôpital Universitaire, de Mirbelay opened in 2014, and that same year, Jim established Build Health International. To date, they've worked in over 26 countries and completed nearly 200 health infrastructure projects. BHI's mission is to design, build, and equip high-quality health infrastructure for the most marginalized populations in under-resourced settings, while also promoting international philanthropy and development. It's a mission that really resonates with us here at the Pulte Institute, and I'm really excited to dig deeper into Jim's experience. Jim, welcome. I know you're busy working on the relief effort in Haiti right now, so we really appreciate taking a bit of time to speak to us today. Ray, thank you. I'm very excited to be on this podcast with you. It's great to reconnect with you. So a pleasure, Jim. And so let's just jump right in. And I thought I'd like to just start with maybe a little bit of your personal story and how you kind of got into BHI beyond the, you know, the illustrious career you had in commercial construction in the Boston area. So the story of how you left your career leading a major Boston commercial construction company and actually started building medical facilities across the globe is, I think, really quite fascinating. And I wonder if maybe you could just kick us off by sharing some of your personal story. How, how did that sort of transition? You know, how did you find uh, yourself in the mountains of central Haiti building that hospital? Well, it's an interesting journey and circuitous journey, Ray. And I want to go back to how I actually got into construction in the first place, which is relevant. I started working in my early 20s as a carpenter, and that grew into a small construction company, which then grew into a much larger company. And we went through just about every stage of development and crisis that entrepreneurial companies can have. But I started in the building trades, which is very different path for most people who run large construction companies. I also was very influenced by my wife, who was very involved with you at Oxfam, your previous uh, life, and had a deep interest in international development. We're always interested in international development and philanthropy and supporting issues, especially around women and children in poverty. We started a very small foundation in the mid-90s, but I sold Shawmut to the employees through an ESOP in 2006. And we decided at that point 
to take half the proceeds of the sale and put it into a larger foundation. And that's what really led me down this path. We also, in the meantime, had adopted four children, three internationally, and that had really shifted our giving focus, our philanthropy, to international development. We were actually connected to Partners in Health through an Oxfam connection and became donors there. And that's really how how I started in Haiti. And Partners in Health, for those who may be listening who are not familiar with it, it Partners in Health is the Boston-based philanthropy started by Paul Farmer, a very charismatic doctor who had devoted his life to work in a very poor area, of mountainous part of central Haiti, out of a small clinic some years ago, and has then gone on to actually been, you know, be setting up programs in, in, in a variety of different countries around the world and, and has been given all sorts of awards for his amazing work on, on global health issues just for those who just don't have that background. So maybe, Jim, if we were to travel to Haiti today, to Mirbele in that remote part of, of central Haiti in the mountains, to that first hospital, what would we see today that's kind of the product of that early experience you had sort of volunteering there? For What was the clinic there that Paul was working out of it that now is yeah. quite a different structure and with offering quite an array of different services? So the original clinic that Paul and his colleagues started which is in Kanj, is still there. This is down the road from Kanj, just in a valley at sort of the central crossroads of what's called the Central Plateau in Haiti, which is sort of the gateway to the mountainous rural regions in the center. And it's actually without traffic, only about an hour and a half from Port-au-Prince, from the city. So the hospital is quite accessible, by certainly by Haitian standards. And you come to Mirbele, and it's, it's a small city town, but you drive through lots of very small dilapidated buildings, and you come into an open area with a view of the mountains, and you see this huge hospital that now encompasses 24 acres. I would love to tell you that the hospital is beautiful. It's uh, very utilitarian, but it's clean and well kept up. And there are huge numbers of people everywhere around the hospital. When I first went there in 2009, it was just pastures and rice paddies and farmland, and it's completely transformed now. And what I think would impress people most is just the number of people and the activity from hundreds of food vendors along the road, motorcycles transporting people everywhere, and just throngs of patients. We designed the hospital for 600 outpatients a day. They routinely see over 1,500. Well, and so, and the hospital offers a variety of services that normally people would not access in a region like that. In other words, you know, normally a clinic like in the one you described in Conj would be basic healthcare. But here, I think Paul had the ambition to do a lot more in terms of uh, more complex services that you'd normally find in a metropolitan area, I think. Yeah. It's really a tertiary care hospital, meaning they have specialty services ranging from oncology all kinds of surgical procedures that aren't done in the public sector in Haiti, very robust orthopedic surgery 
program, which is really important. Of course, lots of internal medicine beds, infectious disease wards, on and on. It also, we built in 2016, a reference laboratory that has the first BSL-3, biosafety level three laboratory for highly infectious diseases in the Caribbean, the first fixed one and permanent one, and also a pathology lab, which has also been critically important, especially for the cancer programs. And I imagine sort of maternal child health care in rural areas where there's food deficiencies and other issues is really, really important in places like Katy. I imagine that's probably a big part of the, the program as well, no? Yes. And when I started working in Haiti in 2009, there were less than five incubators in the public system, if you can imagine that, for what was then 10 million people. At Mirbelay, the hospital, we added initially 25 spaces in a neonatal intensive care unit, NICU. And now it's up to over 40 or 50 babies in the NICU. And they do a huge amount of OBGYN surgery as well, especially C-sections. They have a lot of complex pregnancies referred to them, but there's still a huge gap in Haiti in terms of maternal and neonatal care. Well, certainly that's going to have an impact on sort of maternal mortality issues in those rural areas where you yeah. know, basically there usually is never a solution for a woman in, in that kind of a crisis. Yeah. What about any connection with sort of a teaching function in Haiti for doctors? In other words, you're in a rural area. Doctors mm-hmm. don't necessarily like no. traveling out of the capital. They're oftentimes linked into a private hospital system that where they're kind of earning a kind of a living. And so what's attractive about getting medical personnel out there that are yeah. offering services? I mean, this is quite amazing. Yeah, this is a very important question. And one I really didn't understand fully until the last few years the impact that this would have. And I need to credit Paul Farmer for his vision around medical education, because what's most important about the university hospital at Mirbelay, I think is not just the patients it treats, but the doctors and nurses and techs it trains. And that's really a critical part of the vision. And the idea after the 2010 earthquake was How do you lift this medical system that was so weak before the earthquake and then so mortally damaged in the 2010 earthquake? And the answer has been this teaching hospital. We have seen now um, that Mirabalay has been up and running for eight, nine years, the impact of that. We have the first emergency medicine program, true emergency room and emergency medicine residency. And now we have opened other emergency rooms in Haiti with doctors trained at Mirabalay. We see it with surgical programs, and we've done a number of surgery centers at other hospitals, again, staffed by these doctors. We see it over and over again, and it's incredible impact. Another Part of the vision and to your other question was, which I didn't, again, didn't appreciate at the time of building this, was that by building a first-class facility that had 24-7 electricity, that had working medical equipment, that had uh, ways for 
Haitian clinicians to professionally advance, it would be a magnet for the most talented doctors and nurses and other professionals in the country to both stay in Haiti and to stay in the public sector. And it has absolutely worked. For that, I'm deeply grateful. It's really had an impact in that regard. The hospital and the school are, at this point, public institutions with government support then? They are. The hospital is owned by the government of Haiti. There's a long-term MOU with Partners in Health to run and administer the hospital. The Haitian government does participate in some of the funding, but the majority of funding still has to come from Partners in Health and funds they raise every year to support this because it's essentially free care other than a very small registration fee. And the vast majority of people in Haiti cannot afford to pay for services. And there's no viable healthcare insurance scheme in Haiti right now. In the country, yeah. Yeah. One of the innovations with the hospital, I think if you sort of get an aerial shot, is it's got solar panels on the roof. And obviously in a hospital setting where you're in the middle of sort of critical sort of surgical procedures, you don't want the electricity to go off. So yes. what amount of the power for the operation of the hospital is actually coming from the solar system? It's been a circuitous journey with the solar system. We planned originally to have 1,800 solar panels that would be tied to the utility grid because at the time there is a hydroelectric dam that is only 20 miles away that was built in actually the 1920s by U.S. companies. The dam is only providing about 5 to 10% of its capacity, but there were a lot of programs and grants to rehabilitate the dam and rehabilitate the electrical system after the 2010 earthquake. For a variety of reasons, those never came to be. The grid in Haiti has deteriorated substantially since then, We disconnected completely from the grid at the hospital in 2015. And now we have a, when we converted the solar to a microgrid, we've done half of that plan. The other plan, which we're about to start pending the finalization of funding, is to double the size of the solar panels and add very large batteries probably Tesla battery packs and have a complete microgrid that would support the hospital. Right now it's run by solar and diesel generator, which is expensive. Yeah, yeah, sort of a mixed system for the moment. Wow, that's quite exciting. It's interesting just to hear about this deterioration of the electrical system. And there were lots of promises for funding to Haiti after that earlier earthquake. And a lot of that money never that was promised never showed up. It may be one of the casualties of that whole episode. So Mirbelay was the start for you, but then you actually took on some other projects. You kind of started your love affair with Haiti, if I could put it that way, and then moved on to some other projects in Haiti. But maybe you could describe a little bit of some of that other work you've done in other parts of the country. Well, yeah, we finished the hospital and it opened actually in, in April of 2013. And I thought at that point that I would sort of consult with partners in health. BHI did not yet exist as an entity, and we sort of disbanded our team. At the same time, we started working at a very small hospital 
in a very rural area of the Southern Peninsula, St. Boniface Hospital, which is also supported and run by a organization in Newton, Health Equity International. It, it was a very small hospital and amazingly founded by a Catholic priest, Father Jerry Osterman, and one of his parishioners who were in St. Boniface Parish in a housing project in Quincy, Massachusetts. How Jerry and Nanette, his parishioner, and their parish, which was not a wealthy parish at all, founded and developed this hospital is still, to me, a miracle, an act of God. It's pretty amazing. It's really rural. And we started working with the executive director, Connor Shapiro, there in 2013-2014. And we've built it up into the second largest hospital in Haiti and certainly the largest hospital in the Southern Peninsula. We added an emergency room, again, staffed by Mirabelay graduates, a surgical center, also staffed by Mirabelay surgical residents and attending doctors, and continue to develop that hospital. And that led us to many other projects throughout Haiti. And then in 2015, 2016, starting in West Africa, and now we're working in 26 countries. What was the inspiration to kind of help you decide you could make the leap to kind of do this globally? From going from one hospital yeah. where you're in the southern peninsula of Haiti, where you're working with a you know, poor parish out of Quincy, yeah. going global is a big leap. The person who really both inspired me to do this and made it possible is actually Dr. David Walton, who is the co-founder of Build Health International and was a student and protege of Dr. Paul Farmer at Harvard and worked in Haiti for Partners in Health for about 12 years. And he was the person who really brought me into the Mirbelay project originally and developed that with me. And we shared a small room in what had to be one of the hottest houses in, in central Haiti. It was hard to go to sleep. It was so warm, especially during the summer. You know, we used to talk at night and we used to often talk about all the challenges we had in building this hospital because we really did. We had our, our hands full every day. But we also used to talk about what we were learning and how we could do it better in the future. And that became a little bit of an obsession of mine. And that's what really led us to start Build Health. We incorporated in January 2014, you know, with the idea that we could learn from what we did in Mirabelay and fill a huge void in sort of the international development world and do it better. And that was really the inspiration start of Build Health. So, you know, there's lots of hospitals and clinics that have been funded by donors around the world for literally probably the last 50 years or so. Many of them are not operational <laughs> for a right. lot of reasons that you understand. But I guess I, I sort of wondered, what did you think you could do differently that, you know, where you'd be adding kind of value that, that would really be the sort of the core of the the value proposition for BHI today? In other words, you know, what's the vision scope and the approach that you were hoping to kind of build into it that was going to be the difference maker? 
Well, in doing the Mirabalai Hospital, David and I really did it with from scratch. We worked with a small architectural firm from Chicago who did not have healthcare experience and were, were doing a pro bono. And we ended up forming a team of architects and engineers and doing a lot of it ourselves. And in doing that, I learned I had done a lot of healthcare construction and been around healthcare architecture for many years in the U.S., but doing it in a low-resource setting like Haiti is very different. And I learned so much from David, and we sort of struggled through so many issues. An example of that would be, how do you create a ward, because we're not doing individual and and semi-private rooms, how do you create a ward? What's the right size for that ward to be for healthcare in a place like Haiti, for the nursing in a place like Haiti? How do you, for example, monitor the patients when you don't have central monitoring like you do in the United States or Europe, where you don't have everything electronically transmitted to a central nurse's station? You know, the issues of line of sight. Can you see if the patient's in distress? Can you see if the patient's breathing became so important? Then thinking through the systems, what should be air conditioned? Can we get by with natural ventilation? You know, what does that do to patient outcomes? All those things are issues that we started grappling with in 2010, and we're still working on today at BHI and refining. You know, if you make a hospital too complex, it's too hard, it's too challenging to maintain and too expensive to maintain. An average hospital in the Northeast in the United States or the Midwest would consume 10 to 12 watts of electricity per square foot. Our goal is one to one and a half watts per square foot. Otherwise, solar becomes impossible and too expensive, and certainly running by generator is out of the question. So energy conservation is a huge part of it. I think it takes us down an interesting path, because I think part of what I picked up from our conversations in the past, and I know that you have kind of picked up in the way of learning, is there's all these cost differentials that have to do with, you know, trying to do construction in the United States that, you know, you've got to operate within the sort of the, the contractual boundaries of a cost structure per square foot, and it's all very precise. And then you go to a place where, you know, resources are extraordinarily scarce, and the whole cost structure is, is entirely different. And so it creates amazing challenges. And yet you're trying to innovate to kind of solve problems that nobody's ever solved before. So there's kind of a, an innovation around cost management, and there's an innovation around technology, and maybe the lack of technology <laughs> that you're building into the way the hospital is managed. And I think talking about some of the other projects you're working on where these issues of cost and technology are kind of um, central, I think would be kind of interesting. I mean, if you want to just toss in a few examples of of those kinds of uh, where those two things kind of converge and you kind of come up with some creative solutions that you're now applying more broadly. Yeah, I live this every day and it's a constant challenge for us. A couple projects that that come to mind that I'm, I'm working on now. One, we're designing a children's ward for a new children's orthopedic surgical hospital in Zimbabwe. 
for Cure International. Cure International is an amazing NGO based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's been around for about 25 years, and they run 10 hospitals in Africa and one in the Philippines that do orthopedic surgery for children completely free and very complex surgery. And they've just opened this hospital in Zimbabwe. And typical hospitals in Zimbabwe and in the rest of the hospital at Cure Hospital, Zimbabwe has winter and summer, and it gets pretty cool at night in the winter into the low 40s. And it gets quite hot in the summer, similar to South Bend or or New England. And... uh, But they don't have central heat and they don't have central air conditioning. One of the things we are looking at is how to provide heat and cooling and also provide outside air changes. So there's ventilation in the space and do it in a low tech way because we can't start adding big air handlers and ductwork throughout. We have a limited budget for this building. This is a simple one-story building. That's a challenge I've been wrestling with the last week. And we're looking actually at the viability and cost of using uh, there's heat exchangers to both exhaust air and use that exhaust air to temper incoming outside air to get some air movement in the spaces. That's an example, you know, and there's many more I can go into as well. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, you're kind of taking a traditional problem that would be easily solved with a big budget, and then you're kind of trying to have to think it down to kind of a different level. But I mean, this this is a good one with ventilation. But are there some other things that have to do with lighting or kind of, you know, infectious control? Or when we walk into a hospital, we don't even think about it because it's all taken care of. But you're walking in there and know it's not being taken care of, and then you're having to come up with a technical solution. So most of our hospitals that we do are in the tropics, in the middle latitudes, and quite warm. Heat is not an issue unless you're at a high altitude. And humid, probably, as well. And humid, yeah. One of the first things we look at is what areas of the hospital can we provide natural ventilation, no air conditioning, and not compromise patient outcomes, patient safety. So if we're in a surgical suite, if we're in a neonatal intensive care unit, any kind of critical care unit or substerile, a lab, for example, we have to have air conditioning. We have to filter the incoming air. But in most patient wards, we don't. So we've gone backwards in terms of design back to certainly the 1900s, where we have high ceilings slow-turning ceiling fans to circulate air. We take in air down low through louvers or vents and exhaust it up high so we get natural convection. And that works incredibly well in many cases. The other thing we do is we use UVC lights that kill certain types of bacteria, especially TB, which is in most of the countries we work in an issue in terms of airborne diseases, TB and other diseases, those lights uh, shine in the upper three, four feet of the ceiling 
And as the air is circulated through it, it kills that bacteria. And that's very important as well. And that's the technology people today are seeing being used on airplanes around the world to deal yeah. with COVID. Yeah. UVC was an obscure industry until a year and a half, two years ago when COVID hit. There were only a couple companies in the U.S. that made upper air UVC lights. Most of their market in the U.S. was only in sort of patient shelters and, you know, other places that you would see small pockets of TB for homeless shelters on Indian reservations, things like that. Are there other things like that, like the UVC solution, where you're kind of taking a kind of a a technology that is kind of known in the more industrialized world and you're, but it's at the price point on it has come way down. So you can actually apply it in a place like, you know, Zimbabwe affordably at scale so that from a medical and care point yeah. of view, you're actually making a major upgrade in terms of quality of care. Yeah. We're doing a lot around oxygen that's been exponentially increased because of COVID. But even before COVID, we were huge proponents of piped oxygen in the hospitals we designed and built rather than these huge oxygen cylinders that you see in photos sometimes. You just get much better patient outcomes if you have an oxygen outlet right above the patient's head and you can very easily give them oxygen. There's a lot of issues with oxygen in low resource settings and a lot of challenges, how you make it, how you store it, et cetera. But one of the things we've worked on a lot is how to more cost-effectively do oxygen piping. It's very complex and expensive in the U.S. because of regulations, primarily fire regulations. Most of the regulations in the United States around uh, piped oxygen stem from the idea that they never want oxygen to become a fuel for a fire. However, if you have pipes encased in concrete or concrete block, as we do in most of the buildings we built, it's much less of an issue. So we have been developing and testing different ways and lower cost ways to do the piping, to assemble the piping and make sure it's safe and radically lower the cost of delivering oxygen to the patient. Interesting, huh? So maybe just moving on to some, maybe some other related topics, you know, doing construction under normal circumstances is challenging. So, you know, doing large projects in remote areas of any country like Haiti is going to add some difficulty. And maybe looking a little bit beyond the sort of these technology and innovations you're doing, one of the critiques you often hear of funding the building of schools and health clinics in countries is that once the building's built, the teachers, textbooks, doctors, medicines don't necessarily show up. And I'm curious how at BHI you've been trying to address this challenge and ensuring that, you know, the projects that you're taking on actually are going to have some durability, sustainability post-construction. That's a very legitimate question. And the answer is complex. And in many cases, it's driven by the funders, actually. I will never forget when we were building the Mirbelay Hospital I attended a meeting with a Haitian doctor from Partners in Health that was held in Port-au-Prince, where we had 
at the time, there were six major hospital projects approved by the Interim Haiti Reconstruction Commission. And we had representatives from about seven different governments and government agencies. These were all being funded by the United States government, the Japanese government, the Canadian Red Cross, the, uh, the Japanese Development Agency, you know, on and on. And I'll never forget when we were much further ahead than all these other hospitals. In fact, we opened Mirabalay before any of the other hospitals opened and only one had broken ground. And today, unfortunately, only Mirabalay and one other are really seeing significant numbers of patients. So the criticism is legitimate. But one of the reasons that this happens and what dawned on me at this meeting was the Haitian doctor and I were roundly criticized by not only the U.S. State Department, but other state departments for daring to fund this hospital's, the Mirabalay Hospital's operations. And they said that that was a huge mistake, that we should only be doing bricks and mortar, which we thought was just absurd because the Haitian government did not have the capacity to fund the operations. So that clarified for me that we didn't want to design and build hospitals, whether they be in Africa, Haiti, or anywhere else, unless we had a partner, an operational partner, like Partners in Health, like Cure, who was committed to funding the operations. Now, Partners in Health's hope is that someday the Haitian Ministry of Health, who owns the hospital we built, will fund it. But that may be 20 years from now, especially given the recent events in Haiti. And I think that funders have to have this long-term sort of horizon and vision if they're going to really want to make substantive change. So often people want to give a three-year grant, have measurable successes at the end of that, and declare job well done. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, because there's always a new health problem. <laughs> right. We're always but, going to be sick in some fashion or other. Somebody's going to be sick. We've got a plan for the long term. So picking these projects where you've got that kind of partnership with the state and also with a, you know, with a reliable third party sponsor is probably the formula that's going to work in many of these cases. So far, I mean, with all the, you're in 26 countries now, how do you feel your track record of success is, is going so far? I mean, in terms of the projects you've taken on and kind of what's the aftermath has been. And some of them are obviously going to be really big, and some of them are going to be more targeted toward a, maybe a, a technical improvement, I suppose. They're not all going to be, you know, an entire hospital facility necessarily. Right. right. No, that's correct. I mean, we've done now, I think, over 400 individual projects. A lot of them are very small, but necessary. You know, we don't seek projects. We seek long-term partners, and we'll do sort of whatever it takes to help those partners succeed and deliver uh, dignified, affordable healthcare. So yes, many different, our projects are, you know, in many cases are just design and planning. We really do more design, architecture, and engineering now than construction in terms of number of projects. And that is filling a huge void. We find as we get into East Africa, especially 
there are many more qualified contractors who can build these projects. They just need accompaniment, some supervision, and some help in building to the standard that we're looking for. I interesting comp. So it depends. So regionally, now you're sort of finding that your approach can vary based on the talent, the financing, and the competencies of contractors. That's great. Yeah. That's good news, actually. So maybe I, I just want to switch back to Haiti a little bit. You've basically been down there after the earthquake. You're sort yeah. of seeing what things look like. And, you know, you had some familiarity with the earlier 2010 quake. What does it look like on the ground after this quake? Yeah, it's very different in that, you know, this earthquake is in a much more rural area and less densely populated. So there's certainly less death, but proportionally a huge amount of people have lost their homes. And I think at the latest data is about is 46 out of 90 hospitals, clinics, and health outposts in the three most affected departments, which are like states, have been badly damaged or destroyed. Unlike the 2010 earthquake, there's an incredibly anemic international response in terms of aid. We're extremely concerned, and our focus is health, obviously, but this applies to education, livelihoods, everything else, about what's going to happen in these three departments over the next few years. We're working on a plan right now with Partners in Health and the Kellogg Foundation to design and build 11 temporary clinics in strategic locations identified by the Ministry of Health because people are not getting primary health care. And the NGOs who came in and set up to provide earthquake relief are leaving. So there's going to be a huge void just for primary care and maternal care that we're very concerned about. Yeah. Is this the first time you've actually responded to a humanitarian crisis? In other words, in some ways, it shifts your mission a little bit. No, we had done this in for Hurricane Matthew in Haiti. We had also worked with partners in health in responding to Ebola in West Africa, and also not as BHI, but as you know, volunteers for Partners in Health, certainly after the 2010 earthquake. But our sort of humanitarian emergency response in Haiti is done. It was primarily logistics and helping to deliver meds and supplies to Partners in Health, St. Boniface and other partners there. And now we're really starting to look at the long-term and figure out how we can help the Ministry of Health rebuild because the lack of funding is going to be a huge obstacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. your point about the kind of failed donor response comparably to the, the one earlier is yeah. quite stunning. And it's happening at a time what, when the president's assassinated and the government's in kind right. of crisis and, and the institutions are, are weak. The entire U.S. response, at least as of a week ago, from the State Department was $32 million of which a lot of, of lot of that has already been spent on air support for airlifts and helicopters. This whole region in Haiti, what exacerbates everything is this region in Haiti is cut off from Port-au-Prince and airports because gangs control this area called Martisan, which is the only 
real road into the Southern Peninsula. So it, oh, it makes logistics incredibly dangerous and difficult. Yeah, so there's a major security issue in terms of doing actually doing anything. Yeah, the coast of Mexico is going to tackle that one. Wow. Yeah, well, that's where earlier they had UN forces in there basically trying to play an inter, kind of an intermediation role around the security questions. And this time, you know, perhaps that's not there in the same quite the same way. Right. I sort of wonder maybe just thinking a little bit about how the organization's coming together, you know, as BHI for the future. I wonder, you know, well, one thing I, you know, here we are in a university where we've got a lot of students and a very strong pre-med program. I'm kind of wondering how does volunteerism kind of fit into your your staffing configuration? Like who's working at BHI today? You know, how are you deploying people in different parts of the world? And, you know, are there volunteer opportunities for people to kind of pitch in and, and lend a hand as it were? And perhaps, you know, in specialized ways. Yes, we used uh, volunteers extensively on the construction of the Mirabalay Hospital. And we still use volunteers not as extensively because the, in Haiti because we have a much more trained workforce. But we have both medical volunteers we match with programs. We have public health specialists and architects and engineers. We work with undergraduate and graduate programs who help us with research and sort of investigating certain topics. So there's a, there's a variety of ways we try to plug in volunteers, and it's a great source for us. We also use a lot of co-ops and interns, especially in architecture and engineering, and it's a great way for us to recruit people for the long term as well. Yeah, I have to believe it's a life-changing experience for many of the young people that you're that have yeah. have this kind of an experience with you. So we're nearly out of time, Jim. So maybe what I'd like to do is maybe you know end by asking you you know about the future of BHI. What are you what are you imagining the organization to be as as it goes forward? How do you see it evolving? You know, how do you see it kind of defining and evolving its niche in this sort of health field? I mean, this is it's a really interesting mission and niche that you've established so far, but you're still probably a bit on a on a learning curve. Where do you see the organization going as it in the next decade or so? Yeah, I think we'll always be on a, on a steep learning curve, unfortunately. But, you know, that is something that we are wrestling with as an organization and the board. We are trying to figure out, honestly, how we can have wider impact where we can only do so many projects a year, even with the growth we, we continue to have. And it's a drop in the bucket. And we're thinking more and more about how to partner with other organizations, how to share our knowledge, not just what we've learned and what's been successful, but what hasn't worked and the mistakes we've made, which as someone who ran a, a nonprofit, you know, is a little scary to share your failures as well as your successes, but we have to figure out a way to do that. And because that's, in the end, I think how we're going to have the most impact, which is change the way people think about healthcare infrastructure in low resource settings, how they think about designing it, programming it, building it, maintaining it, funding it. That's what we have to change. No, I think there's a space for a lot of learning there, because I think a lot of the past practice of, you know, building big metropolitan hospitals or trying to promote sort of privatized 
you know, health systems in low resource economies, they just haven't worked out, despite the fact that we have all sorts of great minds working on these things. I'm a big believer in sort of the, you know, Albert Hirschman, who was an economist, a development economist, and wrote widely and wrote books on the fact that we probably learn more from failure, but we don't take the time and, and we don't have the patience necessarily to focus on it enough. So we fail. We keep having to learn from more failures because we're not taking the ones into account that we've already sort of lived through. <laughs> I think on that journey, you know, a constant learning agenda is probably a healthy thing. So, Jim, big thanks for joining us and sharing your story. It's fascinating. And uh, the work you're doing with BHI, I think, is really for all of us an inspirational reminder of how we can all use our talents to fight inequality and poverty across the world. Unfortunately, we're out of time. And for those of you who are listening, who'd like to learn more and support the work of BHI to ensure that critical health infrastructure is accessible to patients in the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti as well, visit buildhealthinternational.org, their website. And uh, you can learn more about the organization, its mission, and um, the particular kind of contributions it's making. And for more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, visit pulte.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways podcast, where you can stream or subscribe through a variety of different platforms. Thank you for listening. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keough School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu slash global affairs.